Well, if you have a copy of your scriptures, please turn to the 80th Psalm. The 80th Psalm inside of your scriptures. It's a joy to fill in for Pastor David as he is on vacation. And you may wonder why I chose Psalm 80. I wish I had more of a spiritual answer other than we've been going through the Psalter now for about seven years at New Covenant. We're into book three. There's five different books in the Psalms. And David Prussia and I have preached the majority of the lion's share of these Psalms. We preached Psalm 79 maybe six months ago. And the next Psalm in line was Psalm 80. I don't know if that's spiritual enough for you, but this is why we're preaching Psalm 80. And the more I started to learn and read and meditate on Psalm 80, I realized that this is a psalm for people who are not near to God. People who are distant. I don't know who needs to hear that message this morning, but that's the message of Psalm 80. That God wants to bring His people near to Him. So maybe you're feeling distant for whatever reason. This psalm is for you. For the Lord wants you near to Him. Let's ask the Lord to bless the reading of Psalm 80. And let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of Psalm 80. Father, we come before you. And we're here looking at this psalm. Written by someone of, of a Saphian culture and a Saphian tradition looking at the northern tribes, knowing that they had been demolished. But yet your people are still there, and yet you still love them. And you want to bring them back. You want to bring them near. And Father, we pray as we read Psalm 80, we pray, Father, that we would be brought near to you. We pray that by your Spirit we would draw near to you, O God, as you have commanded us to do. Nearness to you is our good. So Father, please speak through Psalm 80, through the reading, through the preaching, Father. We pray that it will be effectual and it will do what you've attended it to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm 80. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph. A psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with this shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls 
so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life. We will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And thus sends the reading the very word of God. In 2006, I fell in love. I was absolutely smitten, head over heels. And my love was a 1967 wood boat. It was an Owens. And I was absolutely in love from the moment I saw her. And some of you may not understand a man's love for his boat. Most people think a boat, the definition of a boat, or you can call it bust out another thousand, and that's absolutely true when you own a boat. But I was in love with this boat. Uh, I was sitting on Three Mile Slough, which is Three Mile River that connects the San Joaquin and the Sacramento River. And when I first saw this boat, the hull was a little wet. The stern had floated into the, the river. It was half sunk, and the the bow was still floating. They had some type of contraption to keep it floating. And the man who was selling it said, you know, if you work real hard, she could be a beaut. <laughs> and I did what every man would do in his right mind. I bought that half-sunk boat. <laughs> had it dry docked. In my evenings and weekends, I would go out there and I would just sand. And I learned about marine-grade plywood that costs 100 times more than normal plywood. Learned about epoxy and sanding and making sure teak looked beautiful. And I'll never forget when that boat was finished. It took me a little over a year. And we put that boat back into the water. I thought it was going to sink again. The bilge pumps were running over time. And it took a while for it to seal, maybe an hour or two. But it finally sealed and it was dry the rest of the time that I owned that old 1967 boat. And I remember looking at it, and I was pretty proud. Man, she was beautiful. I don't know if you've ever restored something back to its former beauty, but it's breathtaking sometimes. Like, wow, she is gorgeous. This psalm is about restoration of something that was one time beautiful that had become ugly. See, to understand this psalm, you need to understand that God loved his covenantal people. The children of Abraham, he loved them. He loved them. And because of sin, the northern kingdom was torn apart from King David's lineage. You had the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. They were brothers they were both in covenant with God, and sometimes it looked like they were warring, and then the northern ten tribes wanted nothing to do with Yahweh. 
Nothing. They kept worshiping Baal. And there was a time where God says, enough's enough. And he sent the Assyrian army. You may know them from the book of Jonah. They were the Ninevites. You've heard how bad they were. You've heard a sermon preached on Jonah. They were the Assyrians. They would eventually make their way down and destroy all of the northern kingdom. And if it wasn't for God's providence, and if it wasn't for a bunch of godly men and women crying out to God, they would have destroyed Jerusalem and taken over the rest of Judah. But that's not what happened. Godly men and women saw how much the northern kingdom was destroyed, that they were people of God, people that God was in covenant with, and someone from a Safian tradition writes this psalm crying out to God, please restore these people. Yes, they're sinners. Yes, they've gone off the reservation. But would you restore them, please? It's a lament for people who are far from God. So God would bring them back and restore them to, to their former beauty. Beautiful psalm that speaks to us today because so many of us have sinned. But God keeps bringing us back. Now if you're taking notes, this psalm's really easy to outline because you're going to see a refrain in verse 3 and 7 and verse 19. Asaph was an incredible writer. Whoever wasn't the Asaph that King David shows, but when that man passed, there would continue to be an Asaphian line and we're in this section of the psalms of this a Safian line of heritage of great musicians and psalm writers. And it's really easy to outline this psalm. The first thing we're going to see is there's an appeal to God's mercy. The psalmist appeals to God's mercy. The second thing we're going to see is there's an appeal to God's pity. And the third thing we're going to see is there's an appeal to God's faithfulness. Appeal to God's mercy, appeal to God's pity, an appeal to God's faithfulness. And as we look at the appeal to God's mercy, you need to understand that the titles of the Psalms, they're inspired. And I think it was Jonathan Mingledorf who wrote a paper on that recently. I don't know why there's much debate. It's pretty clear to me. But the titles are inspired. And oftentimes, there is no title in the Psalms and you're left going, what's this Psalm about? You ever read through the Psalm and you're like, I have no clue what this is about. Sometimes there's little clues. This psalm is, of course, to the choir master, according to the lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. And whenever you see the word Asaph, you're to think of the man that King David hired in the tabernacle. This great musician from Levitical stock. He's from the tribe of Levi. And King David recognized, as King David's a musician, how great this musician was. And he says, you are called by God to write songs. And oftentimes, they were inspired of God and they made it into our Psalter. But of course, Asaph died, but he always had an understudy, did he not? And when he died, there was also another understudy, right? And it became the Psalms of Asaph, these men who were gifted in writing Psalms. But, but here's, here's what's interesting. These are men of the southern kingdom. Not of the northern kingdom. 
You remember, there was King David. And just, just to understand the Old Testament, you, you remember King David united the kingdom. He had a son named Solomon who built this great temple. People from all over the world came to visit Israel. They were the superpower of the day. Oh, the Queen of Sheba was just, wow! And in 936, the, the kingdom split because of Solomon's sin. He allowed a lot of women and a lot of wives, a lot of concubines. They brought their gods with them and he worshipped other gods and the kingdom was split and it was weakened. And then the Assyrian army rose up and was strong. And of course, if you follow that on, you had the Babylonian superpowers, which we see in Daniel we understand that story. And then you have the Persian king, which was Ezra, Nehemiah days, and Esther. And then, of course, the Greeks came into superpower. That's why with the, the New Testament's in Greek. And then the Romans, you're in the New Testament. This is when the Assyrian superpower was in power, but yet someone from the southern kingdom is speaking. There's not many Psalms like this where someone from the southern kingdom is talking about what took place in the northern kingdom. And you may ask, why is this so interesting? Well, part of the reason it's is interesting is because it doesn't mention the Assyrian Empire. Now, if you read the Septuagint, which is the, the Old Testament, right around 285 B.C., written into Greek, they actually put to the Assyrian in there, Calvin believes that this is written about, and Calvin's a good guy to go to, that this is written about the Assyrian Empire. Hinstenberg, Gunkel, all the big hitters when it comes to the Psalms would, would say this is written about the Assyrian Empire. And it should really bewilder you because when we think about the northern kingdom, there was idolaters everywhere. As a matter of fact, we call them the lost tribes of Israel because when Assyria came, they really wiped them out. It's almost as if there were no believers in all the northern kingdom. Then what's the purpose of this psalm? There's no believers in the northern kingdom. Do you remember the prophet that was called to the northern kingdom? Elijah? There was a time in 1 Kings 19 when Elijah looked at the northern kingdom and he said, I'm the only one here. There's not another person that worships God. They're all worshiping Baal. And God reminded him, Elijah, I know you're my prophet, but I've set aside 7,000 who have yet to bow the knee to Baal. So even in the midst of the sin, even in the midst of Assyria coming down and destroying all of them, there were 7,000, at least in the time of Elijah, who did not bend the knee. This psalm is not only a reminder that God wants to bring sinners back, it also is a reminder that no matter what happens to your nation, you're never going to be alone. You may feel as if you're the only one standing up for truth at your school if you're a teenager. Are you the only one standing up for truth at your work? Are you maybe the only one standing up for truth wherever you are, at your job, or in your home? But guess what? There's 7,000 others that have not bent the knee to Baal. 
Oh, this little perplexing, interesting hymn is good for us. As the writers in the southern kingdom are looking at the northern kingdom, asking God to restore them back to their former beauty. Draw their hearts back to you, O God. And look at verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. This is language that comes from Genesis 49. That God was the shepherd of Israel. God shepherds these ten tribes who were rebelling against Him. They were in covenant with God. Though they rebelled, God was still the shepherd. This is why He wants to restore them to their former beauty. Because he understands they were God's people. Yet they have rebelled to the point where God sent the Assyrian army to destroy them. Look at verse 1, part C. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. If you remember Exodus 25, when the tabernacle was was made in the Holy of Holies. You have the Ark of the Covenant. You have the cherubim that actually looked down. And what were they looking down upon? They were looking down upon the mercy seat. See, the psalmist isn't appealing to God's power here. You don't have to question God's power. I think R.C. would say, what could be more axiomatic than God's power? God is powerful. The psalmist is appealing to God's mercy. He's speaking about you who are enthroned upon the cherubim. You who are enthroned upon the mercy seat. This is where you sit. This is where the blood of the covenant is, is sprayed upon you once a year. It is, it is sprayed everywhere with a branch. It is tossed. Why? Because God is merciful. Yes, they were sinners. Yes, there was judgment that came upon them. But the character of God is a merciful God. And He's appealing to God's mercy. Asking God to be merciful to these sinners. We know that that's the theme throughout Scripture, don't we? That us sinners cry out to God for mercy. We deserve death, hell. But because of the blood of Jesus, we don't get this. Because of His grace, we get we get mercy because of his love. We get mercy and he's, and he's crying out for God and he's appealing to his mercy. Verse 2, Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might. Come and save us, O God. If I would quiz most people and ask you, where did Jerusalem sit among the tribes of Israel? Meaning, if you take a, a Bible, and, and you, most of y'all have the book of maps, and if you look at the book of maps, it's not inspired, but it is a good book in the Bible. So you go to the book of maps, and you kind of see where all the, uh, Joshua was speaking about all the land situations, and Jerusalem was technically in the area of Benjamin. Now, many scholars would say that the temple was technically in Benjamin, but the gates and the courts started in the area of Judah. 
kind of like if you've ever been to Lake Tahoe, it sits in Nevada and California, or maybe some of you work in the state of Tennessee, but you live in Georgia. There's kind of that, that, that no man's land of where, do the, where the land starts. The reason Benjamin is mentioned here is because the Assyrian army didn't care about Joshua and how God laid out the land boundaries. When the Assyrian army came, they destroyed everything they could see. And they were going to destroy Judah. But see, they made it to the gates of Jerusalem. And a godly king, godly men, and godly women cried out, and God destroyed that Assyrian army. But the Assyrian army destroyed Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. And someone from Judah, a Saphian stock, is crying out, asking God to have mercy on them because the Assyrians had destroyed their land. Asking God to draw them back and restore them to their former beauty. May they love God once again. May they be near to Him once again. And then we see this refrain in verse 3. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. I don't know if you have a dog. I have an elderly dog. He's 14. My wife and I really love our dog a lot. His name's Toby. And he used to play. Like his favorite thing to do was to take this little toy and we'd fight and I'd punch and he'd throw it away. He's only 10 pounds, so he's not good fighting. But anyway, we'd throw around and come back and we played all day and now one of his favorite things to do is to walk outside and just look at the sun. Just stares at the sun. And just wants that sunshine on his face. It's almost as if the older you get, you just want to walk outside and just have that sun beaming upon your face. This is what number 625 is about the ironic blessing, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. It's the sunshine and the warmth and the beauty and the kindness of the Lord shining on your face. Bringing a smile to your face. Knowing that the Father loves you. Knowing that the Father knows you. We've seen the psalmist appeal to the mercy of God. Now we're going to see the psalmist appeal to God's pity. Oftentimes, when we read psalms that are laments, some think about a victim mentality or a victimhood mentality. Well, there's a difference between victimhood mentality and being a victim. There are true victims, and we have to differentiate between this. Because the true victims, the church is to stand up for and to help and to love, and to counsel when things go this way. There's true victims in the world. But we also know there's this victim mentality. This mentality where you're not going to take responsibility for what happens. You're going to blame everyone else for all of your woes. Understand that the psalmist wasn't having a victim mentality. He was fully aware of the circumstances of why the northern kingdom was destroyed. He was fully aware it was their fault. 
He was fully aware it was their sin that caused the issue. He's fully aware that the Assyrian army, on behalf of God, ordained to come and destroy them. He's fully aware of that. But see, we're talking about pity here. You ever seen a man, he's homeless because of his own issues? It's his fault. It's his own fault. We still have pity on people like that, don't we? Deacons have to understand this. You know how many times deacon are asked for money? Happens weekly. Hey, I need help. I need gas in my car. They could sit there and say, you know what? Where'd you work this week? Probably nowhere. That's why they're asking for money. I mean, what'd you do? Why didn't you say no to the drugs going through your veins? See, pity's a bit different than mercy, isn't it? Pity is, yes, it's completely their fault. But you still have pity, don't you? Like us in our sin, right? Does anybody force you to sin? No, you know why you sin? You like it. That's why I sin. We like it. Yet God pities us. He looks down and says, they, they can't stop. They love what they do. And he has pity, and, and the psalmist is appealing to God's pity. Look at verse 4. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? He's not saying, God, how dare you not listen to our prayers? There are people that usually laments to say, you tell God the problem. No, no. You better check your own heart if you're going to speak to God in a negative way. Remember, he just, that's all he has to do. No. This is a lament. This is asking God, how long, O oh God, before you hear our prayers and restore us? How long, O oh God, before you bless us? With tears in their eyes, the psalmist is saying, how long, O oh God, will you continue to bring destruction. How long before they are restored? Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. There are times where the Lord doesn't listen to prayers. When we have iniquity in our hearts. Or, or maybe like Moses. Had some pride and God didn't listen. Jeremiah, we've been learning in the evenings, makes it very clear. No, don't pray for these people anymore. I'm going to judge them. We even see in the New Testament that if a husband doesn't live with his wife in an understandable way, that can hinder God answering their prayers. We see this throughout Scripture. And the psalmist is asking, how long will you be angry with the people's prayers? When will you bring relief? Have you noticed this cycle in the Scriptures? Now, Judges is just really clear seeing it. But it's really all of Scripture. And if you ever read the book of Judges... God blesses the people. They're like, we love you, God. And what happens within a generation? Ah, we can do whatever we want. God blesses us. And God sends someone to judge them. And within the next generation, they're crying out, oh God, we need help again. Help us. And God sends a deliverer and he delivers the people. 
and they're praising God. Yay, praise God! Then within the next generation, what are they doing? Ah, we can live any way we want to live. God's good. He doesn't care about us. He's already blessed us. God sends judgment again. They cry out, oh God, we need your help, and the deliverer comes. It is so clear in the book of Judges. That's the cycle. But isn't that the cycle of many of our lives? I I know we're not a one-to-one to the kingdom of Israel. I know that. But we're also a nation. And isn't it interesting that our nation has the same cycles? I remember September 11th. I was old enough to remember and watch it. Some of you were there. I know one man was there to see the brave men and women in the fire department, the police department, the EMS running into those buildings, saving people. If you've ever been to the 9-11 Museum, it will move you like you've never been moved. And our nation, many of them what? Cried out to God. Oh God, we love you. We love you. 2023, let's not pray in schools. Let's glorify sexual immorality. Women have potential to make more money than men when it comes to pornography. They say three out of four men have watched pornography. It's a billion-dollar industry. This is our nation. I'm not talking about a communistic nation. I'm talking about our nation. This is our nation. We were just crying out to God to help us and praising Him and singing songs together. And, and, and now we have billions and billions of dollars, one of the, the biggest industries in America. We have states now that want to become sanctuary states. So what? Teenagers can have gender reassignment surgeries? Folks, this is America. We need to fall on our face and ask God to have pity on us. We see ourselves so much in the lives of Israel because we're the same way. Are we not? The moment we get a little bit of freedom, what do we do? Do what we want to do. And sometimes God has to discipline us and bring us back. Praise the Lord for His discipline. Praise the Lord for His concern and His care. The psalmist is crying out. He completely understands that God has judged. Look at verse 5. You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. He understands. This isn't a victimhood mentality. Yeah, they deserved it and you gave it to them. You're the one that judged them. Verse 6. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. If God can judge the northern kingdom, He can judge us. This is also a plea when people are singing this to this day. When you read it, when you sing it, you're to think, wow, if God will do that to the northern kingdom, maybe He'll do it to me too. Oh yes, He will discipline those whom He loves. Oftentimes, God allows people to go through hardship. Oftentimes, He disciplines. Why? To keep the church pure. As a reminder to what? That God is serious about sin. Psalm 103 says, Like a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them 
that fear him. Those tribes had nothing in the north. They were completely destroyed. It was a pitiful sight. And this psalmist recognized how pitiful they were. But see, in that prayer, how long, O Lord, there's also a recognition that God's discipline doesn't last forever. Do you remember Jesus Christ? He who knew no sin became sin for us. Do you, do you remember what happened on Calvary? That the wrath of God was poured out for your sin and for my sin? He didn't stay in the grave forever, did he? We know that joy comes in the morning. And we know that we serve a God who wants his people near. We serve a God who takes the wrath that we deserve, who takes our judgment and wants us near. We have a God that has done everything for you so that you may be brought near. And this refrain in verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. He adds something here. In verse 3, it was restore us, O God. Now it's restore us, O God of hosts. Lord Sabaoth. The, the God that controls the armies of the world. You are the good God. You are the one that controls the armies. You are the one that controls everything. He recognizes this. And he's crying out to God that he would pity his brothers. We've seen the appeal to God's mercy. We've seen the appeal to God's pity. And now we're going to see the appeal to God's faithfulness. I'm not going to name names, but I spoke with a husband in our church recently. And I said, Mr. So-and-so, I'm so excited because your wife signed up for this ministry opportunity to serve the Lord. And the next thing that came out of his mouth was, she's going to be late, just so you know. I said, excuse me? He said, she's going to be late. <laughs> okay, well, she was late, which is fine. Sometimes people are late. Funny thing is, I know some of you are saying, you're a hypocrite, Travis. You were late this morning with the keys. The setup people are mad. I know. I understand. Sometimes we're late. Sometimes people are chronically late. You know God's never late. You ever think about that? Everything he does is on time. Everything. Just past the, the odds of March not too long ago, Ete Brute, then Fall Caesar. That's where we get the stabbing in the back. All of us have been stabbed in the back before. Someone we love and we expect them to be this type of person and they're not and we feel like we've been stabbed in the back. You know God's never stabbed anyone in the back. He has always done what is right. He has always been on time. He is always faithful. Everything he does is right and just. He's appealing to God's faithfulness. He knows the character of God. He knows that he is faithful. He's almost Pauline 
in this third section. Remember when Paul wrote, I am sure of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to the completion of the day of Christ. If God foreloved you before the foundation of the world, he's going to love you to the end of time and eternity. That when God starts a work, he finishes the work. He is calling these people to draw near to God. Yes, you have been scattered. Yes, you have been judged. Draw near to God. He is faithful. The nearness to the Lord is our good, the psalmist would say. Be faithful to your people. Call them back to you. Look at verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. Of course, we know that because of Joseph, and because he was sold into slavery, he went to Egypt, and the brothers came to Egypt. God blessed them. They became numerous. But then they became enslaved, and God brought them out of Egypt. Not only did you bring them out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. They had somewhere to go. They had to cleanse the land, but they did. Verse 9, you cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. 10, the mountains were covered with this shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out branches to the sea and it shoots to the river, probably the Euphrates. You did this. God, you grew these people. You're the one. They could have just died in the slavery there in Egypt. No, you brought them out of Egypt. You're the one that did this, oh God. And then he asked this question. You have been faithful to them. Why then, verse 12, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. If you've ever lived in a community near wild hogs, they will completely destroy every bit of vegetation and all of your grass and your lawn and anything. Why have you raised your vine up? Why have you raised your people up just to have them destroyed? I want you to understand this is the same prayer that many parents pray about their children. Why have you given me children that I took to church, that I loved, that I baptized, only to allow the wild boar of the world to come and destroy them? Or maybe people have prayed that prayer. Why, oh God, did you give me a spouse just to see them break the covenant or how many times have you given me a loved one, O oh God, just to see the wild boar destroy it, our job? The reality is this. The psalmist understands the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 8. You brought the vine out of Egypt. Verse 9. You cleared the ground for it. Verse 12, why then have you broken down its walls? You raise them up and you bring them down. Don't know why, oh God, but you're God. You will do what's right. You are the God of the universe. 
It's a plea to ask God to save. He's appealing to God's faithfulness. You've done this before. You've given us this. Would you please save them, oh God? Have you ever cried out to God and not understand your situation? Or is it just me? Have you ever not understand what's going on? Sometimes the only thing we can hang on to is that God is in complete sovereign control of this universe. And He's good. He's not a monster. He does everything because He wants His people near to Him. He wants His glory to be seen. Verse 14. He's crying out again, pleading in God's faithfulness. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. You did it once, O God. You brought them out of Egypt one time. You're the good shepherd. Do it again, O God. Draw them back to you once again. Verse 15, the stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. He's speaking about Israel. Your son Israel. Do you, do you remember when Moses was, was struggling speaking? God said, hey, you're going to go talk to Pharaoh. Moses says, I'm not a good speaker. Choose someone else. I said, no, 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 no. You're the one that's going to speak. I'm going to give you the words to say. Do you remember the words that was put on Moses' mouth to speak to Pharaoh? He says, you let my people go. Let Israel, my firstborn son, go to worship me. But because you refused, God said, firstborn son for a firstborn son. Pharaoh, your firstborn son that you loved, Done. He's going to die because you refuse and you mess with God's firstborn son. A son for a son. See, ultimately Israel is God's firstborn son. Of course, you understand Matthew picks up on this in Matthew 2, does he not? Jesus is called, out of Egypt I have called my son, picking it up from Hosea. Jesus is the true Son of God is true Israel. If you've been in our church any time or if you've read Dale C. Allison, who's a Princeton Theological Seminary professor, not everything he writes is good. I probably shouldn't have said his name because you're going to research him now. But he speaks about the infancy narrative in Exodus that is also mentioned in Matthew and the crossing of the water and the wilderness temptations, the mountain uh, law giving, basically everything that Israel did in Exodus Mr. Allison is going to tell us Jesus did the very same thing and fulfilled those prophecies. He did the same thing that Israel did. Coming out of Egypt, going on top of the mountain, crossing through the Red Sea, Jesus does the same thing, much of it in chronological order, not always, because Jesus is true Israel. And this is the reason when you read John 15, many commentaries are going to say Psalm 80 is the context of Jesus saying, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. I'm the true Israel. There in the wilderness, everything that took place was me, and now you have been grafted in. 
And if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the vine, you are the branches. It is not you that support the root, it's the root that supports you, my friends. And if you want to be near, you must come through the Son. Ultimately, the Son that you planted and you made strong. Verse 16, the Assyrian, the Assyrian, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. May your face shine upon us, but we know that God doesn't always show his face for warmth and sunshine. This is the reality. Some are going to see the face of God in judgment, and it will be scary. Other of us will see the face of God and see his smile. He's going to hug us like, no, he doesn't have arms, but my Savior has arms. And he's the second person of the Godhead. And he's going to hug us at least. And we're going to hug him, and we're going to embrace one day. And our Father is going to look at us, and Lord willing, say, good job. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You don't want the rebuke of the Lord. And the psalmist is saying, rebuke the evil ones that hate you, but don't rebuke us who love you. Verse 17, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. In context, many believe this is Hezekiah. Keep Hezekiah strong. He's the king. He's the one that's going to stop the Assyrian army. Others believe it may be Josiah, but ultimately we know who it is, don't we? We know that when Daniel looked up into the heavens, he saw a human being sitting in the right hand of God and went, huh, the son of man, a human being sitting in the right hand of God the Father. We know that this is Jesus Christ. This psalm is pointing us to the true king of kings that's going to come and rescue us. Because when the true king of kings comes, look at verse 18. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. How did he know regeneration precedes faith in Psalm 80? Give us life. You create life in us. And then we'll call upon your name. It's all over scripture if you want to look for it. God is the God that creates life. And when he regenerates us, we're able to call upon him and love him. And when the true king comes, all wrongs will be made right. I want you to look at this last refrain in verse 19. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. There's, there's one word that's different here. See, in verse 3, it's just O God, O Elohim, which is the name of God, the general name of God. Verse 7, O Elohim Sabiath, which is the general name of God, the commander of the army. Here we see no more general name. If you see it in all caps in your Bible, that's because that's God's name that he revealed to Moses and to his special people, which is Yahweh. It's almost as if Asaph was preparing us to say, okay, God, God, now you know God. You don't see musical notes, but you can imagine it in your head. The last 
verse, the last refrain, you got everyone singing, saying, we know God personally, and he loves us. He's our God, and we're his people, and we're not ashamed, and he's not ashamed to call us his people. God wants us near. As we close, if you remember my boat, when I saw that 1967 Owens that I fell in love with, I'll never forget as she was half sunk, the stern was in the water, and I just pierced into the water. I didn't really know the name of the boat. And I looked, and it started to become more clear. Her name was A. Maze of Grace. I said, oh, that's interesting. A maze of grace. And every time I worked on that boat, I kept seeing a maze of grace. And it became a picture of my life. There have been times that I've been far from God, and you know what he does? He restores me. There were times I walked away, and you know what he did? He restores me. There's a moment in life I wanted nothing to do with him, but you know what he did? He restored me because he loves me. Because he ordained my salvation before the, before the world was ever begun. He loved me in such a way he was going to passionately love me to the end of time. Because he purchased me on a cross. And hopefully it's a picture of your life. And if you're far from God and you're far from Christ, maybe you need salvation today. Well, I'm here to tell you, you're in the right place because Jesus Christ, I will proclaim to you, will take you. There's no one in Scripture who has turned for their sins and called upon the name of the Lord who hasn't been saved. Call upon His name. Knowing that that little bit of calling is, is something that God has put inside of you. Or maybe you're in sin. Maybe that's why you're distant from God. That's what sin does. It, it puts a wedge between us and God. There's a lot of godly men and women and elders in this church that want to help you. We've all been there. We understand. Or maybe you're just in the dumps of life. That happens. Keep pressing on. Keep running to the means of grace and understand that God is always there to take us back. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of the word.